A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects, the arts and culture app. Created by Bloomberg Philanthropies, Bloomberg Connects lets you access museums, galleries and cultural spaces around the world on demand. Download the app to access digital guides and explore a variety of content. Hello, I'm Ben Luke and welcome to A Brush With, the podcast in which I talk to artists about their influences from writers to filmmakers, musicians and of course other artists and the cultural experiences that have shaped their lives and work. And in this episode, it's A Brush With, Gary Simmons, a hugely significant figure in a generation of politically engaged and artistically ambitious US artists that emerged in the early 1990s. Gary explores the complexities of race and class through media, including drawings on chalkboards, sculpture, installation and architectural environments. He draws on pop culture, including cartoons and sports iconography, to create works that address systemic and enduring prejudice and the nature of memory, its tenacity and fragility. Gary's language is deeply personal and informed by his own experiences, but also calls on imagery with collective, if unstable, meanings. He was born in New York in 1964 and studied at the School of Visual Arts there, graduating in 1988, before doing a postgraduate degree at CalArts in Los Angeles, graduating in 1990. Both schools had influential tutors that were major players in distinctive histories of conceptual and minimal art and performance, which helped define Gary's early work. In his postgraduate pieces, Gary showed an uncompromising engagement with racism and white supremacist violence in the US. The spectre of the Ku Klux Klan features prominently in the sculptural installations with which he first gained attention in the 1990s. As we'll hear, a serendipitous experience led him to begin working with the drawings on chalkboards that remain a key medium for him today. The material properties and thematic associations of chalk were an ideal means by which he could tackle his subjects. He called on a lexicon of forms that still stalks the landscape of his practice today, from beloved 20th century cartoons that are shot through with the racist stereotypes of minstrelsy, to haunting, evocative architectural sites, the Hollywood sign and shooting stars. These images were drawn onto the board and then smeared and redrawn, becoming ghostly yet insistent, a metaphor for their stubborn appearance in the backdrop of US culture, society and politics, despite attempts to erase or correct them. An important early chalkboard piece appeared in the now legendary 1993 edition of the Whitney Biennial at the Whitney Museum of American Art in New York. Wall of Eyes was a monumental drawing in which a field of cartoon eyes were drawn in chalk on slate paint directly on the wall. Though it had multiple potential connotations, one of the curators of the exhibition, Thelma Golden, likened the image to a scene below deck on a slave ship. Gary's called on words as well as images in his chalkboard pieces. In Frozen in Time, made in 2014, the often racist nicknames of historic black boxers, including those of Sam Longford, Joe Lewis and Jack Johnson, were emblazoned in fonts evocative of traditional entertainment and sporting posters across the wall. Boxing, with its complex relationship with race and class, has proved a touchstone in Gary's work. Likewise, the movies. Fade to Black, from 2017, featured five vast wall drawings with the titles of silent films and the now largely unknown African-American actors who starred in them. As well as sport, Gary has regularly mined the social histories and formal language of popular music, including hip-hop, punk and reggae. Since 2014, he's had an ongoing project called Recapturing Memories of the Black Ark, a reference to the studio of the dub reggae legend Lee Scratch Perry. Inspired by Jamaican sound systems like that used by Perry, Gary created a stage and speaker structure from wood salvaged from homes destroyed by Hurricane Katrina in the Tremaine neighbourhood of New Orleans. It's both an installation and architectural site for events involving musicians, DJs or spoken word performers, mining the themes conjured by the materials Gary used and the cultural references that informed the arc. In recent years, partly because he's been preparing for a retrospective exhibition at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Chicago, Gary has reintroduced the racist cartoon characters that informed his early chalkboards, including in a dramatic series of paintings and in sculptures, among which are references to the crude stereotypes of black people in The Crows from Disney's film Dumbo. Gary's return to these characters is indicative of his unflinching gaze on racism in the United States and beyond, but engaging with ongoing prejudice in his homeland must also be painful. So I began our conversation by asking him, what draws him back?
Early on, when I first started to make work, I was really trying to find my voice between conceptualism and minimalism. I was taught by a lot of folks that were very invested in, in both those kind of genres. And for me to find my own place, I needed to kind of latch onto something that felt personal, that felt local, that felt current. And I think at a time when young men in general, you're coming out of your teen years, your early 20s, you have a lot of energy, perhaps you have a lot of frustration, um, anger, rage, whatever it is, I channeled it through the art. And I think that the politics of the time that I was working in was something that would drive every creative source around me, whether it was music and a band like Public Enemy or BDP or uh, Queen Latifah, somebody like that. You know, I think that there were folks like that. I think there were writers. I think there were artists that um, expressed themselves politically through their work. And, and that was a very accessible source for me to, to draw from. What keeps it going is the fact that we continue to have to deal with the same issues over and over. I think if there's one thing I could probably say is it pains me to think that some of the issues, although it's central to the work, you know, in some cases nothing has changed. So I've produced a work that was 35 years ago and that subject matter is still as relevant, if not more, than in it today. You talk then about that moment, and I'm really interested in that moment in the early 90s when you first started making work and showing. There was a community of artists who emerged at that same time, and there were seminal shows in which you were involved, like the Whitney Biennial in 1993 and so on. But there's also a tremendous resistance from a kind of structure that was the art world. Tell me about that, because you were making these important works... You were having important shows, but if you if you look now at the critics' response to the Whitney Biennial that year, yeah. it's unbelievable to read those words. Yeah. So tell me what it felt like as an artist. Some of them are quite almost funny. Uh, <laughs> you know, now you look back, and and um, I had a few exchanges with some folks. Uh, I always embraced that kind of criticality and exchange. For me, it, I never shied away from somebody that would challenge me in that way. You know. You spoke of, of a group. It was an incredible time to make art, I think, in the late 80s, early 90s, because I worked and went to art school in the mid-80s. And so the picture generation was the people that I looked to, the Cindy Shermans, the Robert Longos, Victor Bergen. You know, I can go on and on. So I looked at work that had a kind of cool reserve and there were painters. I think the, the, the notion of the art star was actually becoming an actual thing. So you, you looked at people like David Sally. You looked at Julian Schnabel. You know, all of these artists were making enormous sums of money for the time and, and were becoming kind of pop cultural figures. You know, they would be sitting there in the first row at fashion shows. And that was unusual to see, you know, outside of a Warhol and something like that. I, I think this was really a moment where the notion of an art star was actually attainable or something. But like anything else, that period came to a screeching halt. And we had something that most young artists haven't experienced yet, which was a crash in the art world. And financially, the bottom completely fell out of... There were some artists that never recovered from some of that. I think, you know, the Julians and the David Sallies and those guys recovered quite well. And if, and if you were smart, you kind of refigured your career and, and moved on. But what that did was it opened the door for a different voice, myself included. And I think that, you know, for me... It was very easy for a museum or a curator to invite me to come and do an exhibition because money wasn't a factor. I would say, well, give me a can of chalkboard paint and some chalk and I can give you an exhibition that'll cover the whole room. Uh, also, politics was starting to really take a stronghold and, and work that wasn't, you know, saleable prior to that. Um, it was coming out of things like uh, ACT UP and the AIDS epidemic and, and things like that. And, you know, 
that type of politic in the art world was there was a lot of people that felt that these groups that were isolated or being targeted by political figures needed to be heard and it was obvious to go to the walls of the galleries and the museums and you know put them on blast and say listen the institution is equally as responsible for this we can't sit and sip champagne and ignore the fact that brothers and sisters are dying of AIDS at the time and and we lost a lot of brilliant artists back then and I personally lost a lot of friends and it was it was very frustrating it was very real it wasn't a game there was no distance you weren't using this as some kind of platform to to make a statement it was the time it was your friends that were dropping it was police brutality on the streets and friends that you that you had we're looking at it now i think we see some of it now and some of the shocking things that i look around and i see is is there aren't as many artists taking up those battle lines you know there aren't those voices you know where are they and it's fun to go to openings and art fairs and parties and things like that but there's a lot going on in the world that's not being represented on the walls of museums and you know i think people like nan golden are, are really putting her money where her mouth is and um putting people on blast for some of the epidemics of you know the opioids and things like that and i think that's important and she's a person that was from the 80s and she knows what that's about and she's she was central to the aids argument so it it's natural for her to make that that step and you know i don't know nan but i'm very proud that she's out there doing that i think that that's important work you mentioned chalk there and i wanted to ask you about this extraordinary serendipitous moment where you just graduated you discovered these blackboards how much of an epiphany was it or how much of it was a kind of slow burn that you thought aha uh-huh, blackboards chalk this could be a medium some of it was even dumb luck <laughs> i think i was working in an old vocational school that was being renovated and i was involved in the renovation and the part of the building that i selected as my studio was where all these chalkboards were being stored so to work on the wall to my right i would have to move all the chalkboards to the left side of the room and vice versa so i was really uh, i was working at the time i was thinking about making a film that was around education and deconstructing how public school education works and um the friend that i was working with it didn't really work out we just couldn't gel creatively you know i've always revered bands because bands you know you rely on three other mates to create the sound and it's the idea of coming from different directions has always been very interesting for me to create one thing but artists are very selfish we're very myopic we're very we want it our way and there's the wrong way and anyway i'm a kind of research nerd so we were working on educational films and i started to really dig and drill down into how children are taught you know i thought to myself well what's the earliest images that a child starts to receive and cartoons were the one that would come to me immediately as a memory i could tell you from saturday morning at 7am to sunday evening at 7am before going to take my bath and going to sleep cartoons were a big player in those hours in between and i was making some objects some sculptures that were based on these chalkboards and at a certain point I marked one of the surfaces that I had recently painted and it was pristine. And anybody that knows me knows that I love pristine surfaces and I'm, I'm a neat freak and things like that. And so I got this mark on the surface and I feverishly tried to erase it. And I realized, wow, I I can't remove this this white on black image and this is interesting. I put water on it. It still, you know, was there. So that stuck with me and I just coupled this I said well what would happen if if I started to draw these kind of cartoon images from the past 
on this chalkboard surface and then attempt at re erasing them. Because for me, it would be about the attempt at erasing a stereotype. And that's the beginning of the erasure drawings. It, it sort of happened right there. And here we are today. And in terms of how that process develops, do you know before you make the work how many times you need to erase to get the effect? Or is there a kind of immersion in the making that ultimately leads to the final image, if you like? Early on, I did a ton of drawings and sketches um, on bar napkins. I would sit in a bar waiting for a friend and sketch things out and try to figure out the direction of an erasure or how I can make a mark look a certain way. So I would get back to the studio and I would do smaller drawings of gestures and paintings. I did tons of drawings. And to this day, I still do a lot, just almost as testers, but they hold up as like legitimate drawings in and of themselves. And I think that that's really important for me because at a certain point, although yes, technically, I suppose you could paint over them, I try not to. I try to leave a lot of the accidents, the sort of missteps that go along with just the natural organic way that you make art or your speech pattern, you might stumble over a word. I, I leave those stumbles in there visually. And I think that's important for me. It, it, there's nothing fussy about the moment. And I think that there's an inherent violence to doing some of these at times. You know, I, I think that it's one of those things that depending on the image and the, depending on how I feel that day, I'll really do my best to try to erase and obliterate that image completely. And then another time I might enter the studio and it's this sort of almost loving, wispy massage of the surface. You know, it's, it's a very, very different thing. I've always said that I could probably do the same image or painting 10 times and it'll have 10 different paintings or drawings. That's kind of the beauty of them. I think this is they're kind of markers or souvenirs to a performance that the viewer never really gets to see. And although it's about erasure and this kind of ghostly image passing over the canvas, it almost freezes that moment of performance in time. So I like that kind of dichotomy between those two places. And now you've moved on to paint and canvas. Yeah. Can you tell me about that shift? Because it seems to me that that would be a very, very different kind of process. We've got one of the star paintings right next to us. Yeah. And erasing chalk versus erasing paint is a very different thing. Totally different. I mean, it's, uh, I had to, I struggled to try to find my voice early on in paint. It's not easy. I think my first go-to uh, is object making. Object making and drawing is probably the most comfortable place that I historically have been. You know, I'm, I'm very conscious of history and who I'm referencing, and I think those things are important. I think that um, I don't ever try to hide what influenced or who influenced uh, the way that I work. Maybe it's my athletic past that comes to the surface and I think you it's important for you to reference who influenced your performance on the field so the art studio is the same thing I, I think that finding that voice and and studying other painters some painters that have visually somebody would look at something that I've done and and not think about those people at all you know an Albert Ullin you know somebody like that is a massive influence for me uh, I love Albert's paintings mm. Jackie Windsor. Jackie Windsor is a, a huge emphasis. If you looked at one of my paintings, you, there's nowhere in that that you could see Jackie <laughs> Windsor's, you know, cubed sculptures from the late 60s or Joel Shapiro or Adrian Piper. You know, like all of those giants are ghosts in my studio. And I think that it's important to maintain those for me that there's a, there's a history and a lineage and a thing that you become a part of, this kind of fraternity that we do. You know, I'm always very thankful every time I open the door to the studio that I'm able to do what, what I do professionally. It's exciting. I mean, I get to travel. I get to meet a lot of different people. And to do something that you love to do so much that includes, you know, you're almost like your political views and things like that on a public stage is quite unusual so it's not lost on me and I really embrace that
Let's move on to the questions that we ask all our guests. Absolutely. Who was the first artist whose work you loved? Hmm. David Hammond's. Oh. The Snowball piece. Oh, great, yeah. That's a piece that I wish I thought of. <laughs> you know, I think that's the ultimate compliment for an artist, is when you look at somebody else's work and you walk in and say, my God, I wish I thought of this. This is a, a great piece. There's something about that questioning exchange, the immediacy of a snowball. It exemplifies everything David's about, the whole process, you know, the, the passers-by, the people that claim that they were there, that saw it, you know. <laughs> Nine times out of ten people say, they, oh, yes, you know, I was there and I saw it. No, you didn't. You didn't see it. <laughs> You know, it was some lady going to a shop with a, you know, her bags, and she was, what is this crazy man selling, you know, snowballs? Um, you know, I think those kinds of gestures, I, I love the Adrian Piper piece where she introduces herself on the business card. You know, Jackson Pollock and those action paintings for me. You know, I went to uh, public school, and we didn't, study art and I'm from a very blue collar working class West Indian family so going to the museum was not something high up on the list and certainly it was not something that we we were encouraged necessarily to do um, but I was very fortunate to have parents that encouraged me to do things that I loved no matter what and, the, you know, I can always remember my father, when I told my father, he said, well, what do you want to do with this art thing? And I said, well, I, you know, I, I think I want to be a, like a painter. And, and he said, really? And I said, yeah, if I can wash dishes and, you know, wait tables or do whatever I need to do, as long as I can do that, I'm good. I don't need to be a billionaire or whatever. And he said, then you should do that. Very few people get to do what they love to do. And I'm thankful I had two parents that left the West Indies and came to the United States and, and were brave enough to let their firstborn son find his own path through art. You know, I think that that's kind of amazing. My parents had this, this sofa in the living room. And um, anybody that grew up sort of in the 60s and 70s probably had a similar sofa. It was covered in this plastic and in the summertime, it would stick to your legs <laughs> and make that crunchy sound. Um, and I would look at the sofa and I'd say to my mother, like, well, when are we going to take the plastic off of this? Like, oh, when we have a special event, we'll take the plastic cover off. That day never came. So <laughs> there was a space between that sofa and the wall and a window and curtains on the other side. And I would hide back there with my box of crayons and do these drawings on the wall. And I do that a few times a week. And uh, one day, as the story goes, my mother likes to tell, they found me back there doing these drawings and the wall was covered with all these scribbles and things. And her immediate reaction was to get sort of angry. <laughs> and my father said, well, we can always paint it over. Just let the boy do whatever he wants to do. You know, and, and now my mother loves to tell that story because she says, look at you now. Now you get paid for doing that very same thing behind that plastic-covered sofa. <laughs> um, which historical artist do you turn to the most today? Probably some of the Abex painters. I think there's a spontaneity to their gestures and mark-making that um, had a real serious impact for me. I probably couldn't pinpoint one specific. I think Franz Klein has had a big impact. I think, as I said, Pollock before, uh, probably de Kooning. Yeah. Right now, probably some of the Abex. I'm, I'm fascinated by how they built up and would tear down a surface. Um, some of the action painting that would go on. Some of the Viennese actionists, even, you know, mm -hmm. things like that. I, th I think... The assumed answer to that question would probably be somebody that was more politically driven. But I think that mark-making is so important. I got the politics. I'm good with that. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. it's more the mark-making. But and it's I, really interesting in the context of Abex because, in a way, the kind of language around that movement now is so bound up with a particular kind of politics relating to the CIA and so on. Yeah. And also the fact that so many of those artists were white men. Yeah. So the kind of language around them is sure. so much bound up with problematic Absolutely. Notions. And that, so, I think that might be one of the reasons why I go to it. 
you know? I think that that's true. That opens up a, a, a very interesting conversation. I don't know if you want to go there, but <laughs> I think that the politics around some of those identities of some of those artists is very important. However, that doesn't exclude some of the important marks that those folks have made and allowed for some of the artists that came after them, artists of color, or women, uh, you know, different genders, to, to actually create their marks. So I think that it's a, it's a complicated kind of construction right there. It makes me think about Jack Whitten, who yeah. I know oh, yeah. taught you. Jack is massive. How important for him a lot of those Abex painters yeah. were and so on. I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, you know, Jack had a huge impact on me. I was fortunate enough to work with him in my undergraduate years. And then later on, we taught together side by side. We would do a kind of good cop, bad cop thing. Um, <laughs> Which one were you? It, it would swap. It would swap <laughs> out. And uh, Jack was, he was like this curmudgeonly grumpy, old, <laughs> lovable guy, you know, and... On the surface, you were like, wow, he's so gruff and he's so, you know. But Jack had this smile that he would kind of, he had his little mustache and his, his glasses and he had this glint in his eye and, and we could light each other up from across the room and really push a student. I really enjoyed having a friendship with Jack Whitten on so many levels and I think that he was the reason why I went to California. I remember Jack sitting in my studio and he said, you know, Gary, you should go to California. And I got kind of defensive. I said, what the fuck? I'm from New York. You're not even from here. Like, he said, no, no, don't, don't get all excited. That's not what I mean. He said, you're more lined up with the kind of conceptualism that's coming out of California. I think you would benefit from working with the Michael Ashers and the John Baldessari's and the, you know, Catherine Lords and all of these kinds of artists. He said, the New York school, you know, that kind of boys painter club, not your thing. Like you, you really need to go and probably do grad school out in California and then come back. And he was spot on correct. You know, it, it was, Jack was, he was an amazing person. And we talked at length about these artists that we're talking about now. Right. So yeah, you know, mark making and even politics. Jack wasn't necessarily a politically driven, you know, he was like, I think you're making a mistake going down this path. You know, it was, um, it was an interesting friendship. One that I value deeply. That sounds so great. I ask about contemporary artists at this point. We've already talked about a few, but I want to return to Hammond's because I've just read an interview that you did with Arthur Jaffer mm. in which you talk about the importance of Hammond's. Yeah. And I think you really hit the nail on the head about the courage, if you like, about what he was doing because you connect him to Jean-Michel Basquiat mm -hmm. and the fact that Basquiat had been one of those art stars that you mentioned earlier. Absolutely. Like the only black art star, really, of that period. Yeah. And then Hammonds kind of emerges into lots of people's consciousness in the aftermath of Basquiat's death, in a way. Right. But he doesn't play that game at all. He does the exact opposite. And that courage that he had just to say, OK, my work's going to stand as it is, it seems to me that is absolutely vital and an incredible moral example to all sorts of people. Yeah. You know, David, there's an artist that has burned his own path forward. And you have to jump through a lot of hoops with, with uh, David. I, I think that um, it's interesting because one of the best compliments I ever had was early on when I started making work, a lot of people compared me to David and his mostly the way that he used lo-fi materials, things that are local, things that are familiar, things that have a kind of patina to them, you know, the, the brown bags of chicken, the, the empty wine bottles, the, the tarps that he uses on the wall. And, and there's always like a very rich history that he has no problem picking up and using and discarding and things like that. Like art is a, a very malleable flexible kind of thing. The materials that he uses conjure courage to use. So the way that he's conducted his, his career, the way that he approaches his art practice, I think um, is directly defined by courage. And I guess the comparison came because David used to have a studio on 125th Street. And in order to get in touch with him, you had to call this fried chicken shop and you would leave a message on this payphone and the person would run a message up to a studio, which was down the street. And when I was younger, I didn't use the payphone so much as I used a beeper. And there were only 
two or three people because I didn't trust a lot of people in the art world. So Thelma Golden was one of the few people that could always get a hold of me. So we had a code and she would beat me and I would recognize her code and then I would, okay, I have to call this person back. (laughs) And then she would, you know, say, oh, so-and-so wants to meet you. So it created this kind of almost like legend in this weird way of who could get in touch with, you know, it was almost like trying to find the underground club or something. Like you had to know somebody that knew. (laughs) So I think that's kind of where the comparisons came in was this, this distrust and this very guarded kind of way of, of addressing the world and, 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 and bringing them into your world. But I think that those artists that you brought up, you know, Basquiat, Hammonds, Adrian Piper, they forged and broke through a lot that allowed for artists that are working now to walk through with relative ease. I think that, you know, if David isn't such a cantankerous and difficult person, if he, you know, he has a way of he won't allow a museum to own his work until he's damn well ready to allow you to own that work and you should be very honored to own a David Hammond's work. And I, you know, I respect that. I think that's, that's fantastic the way he's created that structure around himself and all the legendary stories around David, you know, it doesn't matter if they're true or false. It's just, they exist. So there you go. What do you have pinned to the studio wall? I have an Albert Ullin painting. I have a photograph of Michael Jordan. I have another photograph of Thierry Henry. (laughs) (laughs) This is a good cue to talk about sports then, because you could have been a professional sportsman, right? I I think that was the goal, yeah. And I know that you've spoken, and I find it really interesting that you've compared the experience of being an artist to being a sportsman in terms of discipline. Absolutely. Can you say more about that? Because I think a lot of people listening to this would say, well, the two things are completely opposed. You know, especially when you think about at school, the sports people and the arts people, they're totally all, they're separate. Like, yeah. yeah. So tell me what connects those two disciplines, if you like. I think there's dedication to a craft. I think that that dedication, the waking up and practicing in the dark when everybody's asleep and under their covers and you're out doing road work, running miles at a time in the rain or the snow or whatever it is and it's miserable and it's nothing worse than that and and then you get back home and then you have to get in the gym and start lifting weights and you just hate lifting weights it's the worst thing in the world but you know that it's going to help you produce on the, the field and when you see exceptional athletes the Cristiano Ronaldo's the LeBron James the Michael Jordan's the you know these guys, I'm named for Sir Garfield Sobers. Right. It's, you know, these guys separate themselves to, to the masses. And there's a reason why those guys are separated. It's not just pure talent and luck. I think that some of it is a lot of very hard work that most people don't see. I think that art has a relationship to that. Some of it is, you know, pure marketability and maybe uh, somebody can market somebody's work for a short period of time, but to sustain a kind of David Hammond's level of, you know, 40, 50 years of making work and doing it your way, that is not dumb luck. That is crafted. It is thought through. It is practiced. The way that he looks at the world and he goes on walks and sees things that you and I don't see. And that is something that is generated over time to slow yourself down and it's almost like he sees things in slow motion that we see at real speed and it's like watching an athlete on the pitch you know when when you see somebody carving up a midfield or something like that or a hitter that's just looking at a at a ball and it, it looks like they're hitting a beach ball you're in what you call the zone and you can't explain what that place is and it, it's fleeting it's very short like you might see that beach ball for two weeks and then suddenly it's gone and you can't find it again and it becomes a drug you know and I think that Art is similar to sport, but it's also similar to drugs. And I think that that's the reason why so many of us have problems with addiction, because we're addicted to certain feelings, the way that a heroin addict is addicted to that first high. I think that most artists are addicted to that moment 
when that painting is really clicking, that sculpture has just hit it. And then you've moved on from that object and now you're trying to make another one and have that same feeling again. And so we search in places to replace that. So we drink and we do drugs and we have sex and we, you know, we buy too many things or whatever it is. You know, every artist is terrible with money, but it's, it's, um, I think it's, it's something that you just can't give up. It's an addiction that you, um, that's when you know, you know, it's, that's the fun part about teaching. Like I mentioned Jack before, he used to say, you know, you, you know, when you see another artist, they reveal themselves to you, that obsession, that like, it's a focus that only somebody that shoots a thousand jump shots a day (laughs) can recognize. And that's, that's the comparison. That's really fascinating. Of course, you brought sports into the work in really interesting ways, sociologically and in terms of race, but also class, it seems to me, especially the boxing works, for instance. Tell me about that. Because, of course, again, in terms of the languages, you're communicating about a subject which, again, is is a rarefied subject in the art field in some ways. Yeah. Boxing has always been a fascinating uh, field for me. I think that... It holds so many memories for so many people. It it transcends sports. It's political. You think about Jack Johnson. You think about Joe Lewis and Max Schmeling. These were individuals that, at a time where the boxers transcended the ring, they represented countries. They represented race issues. Um, Those things played out in a boxing ring. Interestingly enough, those two knew each other very well. And when Schmeling when they both basically retired and Lewis was down on his luck and out of money, Schmeling actually helped him out. So they lived on a stage that nobody can access. And I think they understood what they represented. But I don't think boxing is the same anymore. And I think there's a lot of reasons why. I think the there's so many other sports that are young folks are drawn to, whether it's skateboarding or snowboarding or something. You know, like there's all these other things to attract you. But boxing had a bigger footprint in the world. And races and classes of people really held on to the coattails of some of these boxers to carry them through. Things that the people that didn't have voices themselves were carried through by a Muhammad Ali. Every gesture that Ali, when he was Cassius Clay and decided not to go to the army, and, you know, those, those were grand statements. And, you know, he would stand on stage with the Black Panthers and, or the Elijah Muhammad and things like that. Those were not lost in popular culture. So I'm really attracted to the idea that there is this sport, this entertainment, so to speak, which is so brutal in some ways. I mean, you're literally watching two men completely beat the hell out of each other and potentially give each other brain damage. And it represents something so much bigger than that act together. You know, it also, there's great memories attached to it. I I can remember sitting in the basement with my father and his friends, and they would be drinking Mount Gay rum and, and, you know, screaming at the radio and Ali is fighting Joe Frazier, and uh, I was in the basement in Queens, New York, watching you know the radio with my dad and his friends, and just looking at them and watching all their gestures and pretending to throw the left and the right. And there's no other sport really that that has that kind of hold on you. It's sad that it's not like that anymore. There was a period of like a lot of corruption and Sonny Liston throwing a fight. Did he throw the fight? Did he actually get hit? You know, like there's these big grand gestures that were around boxing that were political platforms for other things. And those are the things that I'm drawn to. It's not necessarily the violence of the two combatants. It's, it's more of the things that surround it and what it represents. A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects, the arts and culture app. The free app offers access to more than 200 cultural organisations through a single download, with new guides being added regularly. Among the most recent additions to the app are Abbott Hall, the now reopened gallery in Cumbria, Northern England, the Children's Museum of Manhattan, and Norman Foster at the Centre Pompidou, which focuses on the current exhibition of the architect's work. 
On Bloomberg Connects are various museums where Gary Simmons has exhibited, including the Studio Museum in Harlem, the Walker Art Centre in Minneapolis and Somerset House in London. If you download the app, you'll find that the Somerset House Guide has a section of sound stories evoking the rich history of the architecture, people and events that have defined this celebrated cultural space. There's also a section dedicated to the London Design Biennale taking place at Somerset House until the 25th of June. To explore digital guides to all the partnering institutions, download the app today. It's available from the App Store and Google Play, and you can keep up to date by following Bloomberg Connects on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Which museum or gallery do you visit the most? I enjoy a lot of galleries. I, I think while I'm here in London, I just saw the uh, Isaac Julian exhibition at, at the Tate Britain, which mm-hmm. is fantastic. You know, I've known Isaac for so long, and it was interesting to look at his timeline and where I fit in on the timeline. <laughs> you, you almost place yourself there. It's like, oh, yeah, that's where I'm at. <laughs> but I think those, those films are so beautiful, and the way his film has moved from art school and his, you know, kind of political documenting to some of the more abstract, elegant films now that still hold a lot of the issues that he was dealing with early on, but he's found a poetic, more cinematic way to move through it. That is a beautiful show. If anybody see, you know, has a chance to see that show, they should definitely go to see that. I go to a lot of museum shows when I can. Back in the States, probably... Ordinarily, I would say the Whitney Museum, is that's from living in New York, but mm. since I'm in currently living in Los Angeles, uh, probably MoCA uh, is the number one. But I, I don't get to see as many shows as I should. Is that about being in the studio yourself? And, I think yeah. so, yeah. It's yeah. just, you know, there are people that pass through town. You know, like you mentioned AJ. If AJ had a show up, I would, you know, shut down everything and go see <laughs> AJ's show because he's, he's a close friend. I, I love him dearly, and, and um, I think he's brilliant. So, you know, I stop everything and go see an AJ show. Absolutely right. Which cultural experience changed the way you see the world? I was in art school, and, you know, as I mentioned, being a, a blue-collar kid, not afraid to work, roll up your sleeves and get to work. And I was encouraged from my father to, to do that and intern with people. And I had an opportunity to work with Robert Irwin. And there was a, a little flyer on the, the bulletin board. To, he was looking for workers. And so I, I went to every day I would go to work for Irwin. And we were digging in this beautiful pasture-like area of a park in New York. And... There was a number of young men that were up there digging this kind of ditch. So I didn't really say anything very often. I would just dig my hole and, you know, kind of, I'd eat my sandwich and then get back to work immediately. And um, every day, people would leave and new people would come. And Robert looked over one afternoon and he said, you, you, you there. And I said, me? And he said, uh, yeah, come over here. And uh, he said, why do you, I noticed you're the only person that keeps coming back. Why are you doing that? <laughs> why haven't you quit? And I said, um, well, I, I've, I've really wanted to work with you. I've really wanted to meet you. So I was hoping at some point that I'd be able to drop my shovel and meet you. So he said, well, now you're meeting me. And I said, can I ask you a question? And he said, sure. And I said, well, what are we doing? (laughs) Why are we digging this hole? And he said, well, I'm glad that you asked that question. And he said, look around. And this is the part that became the the moment of ta-da, so to speak. He said, look around. This is an incredible view and vista. You can't compete with this. If we were making an object, you can't make anything big enough or loud enough or colorful enough to compete with all of this. So instead of trying to compete with it, I'm trying to change your perception of this. So what we're doing is digging a three or four feet deep section of earth and lowering it, the earth, down to this three foot level. There'll be steps into it and we'll align the edges with core steel. So it'll just look like the earth just dropped three feet down. I thought this was one of the most brilliant pieces I'd ever seen in my life. And he described it to me as a painting. He said, well, now that's a painting. And 
my head practically blew off. I was like, what are you talking about? He was like, painting is about perception. And I started on a canvas, on an easel, and then got to the edge, and that wasn't big enough. And then I started to work on the wall, and that wasn't big enough. And then I started to work out in the public, and that's where we are now. So it doesn't really matter that it's contained or described on a canvas. It's changing the perception for the viewer. That was probably one of the single smartest moments I've ever been witness to. And um, it stays with me to this day. And I think when I look and try to do wall drawings or I address any kind of uh, architecture, I go back to that moment with Robert Irwin. That's great. Which writers or poets do you return to? Hmm. I'll read anything from Jose Saramago. I think he did a, a book called Blindness. That was amazing. It was about perception, and, and there was a film that followed, which wasn't quite as good as the book. Uh, rarely is it ever. I, you know, I, I think a lot of texts when I was a student, uh, Hal Foster had a huge influence on me. Um, I was fortunate enough to become friends with Hal later on. And so, uh, you know, I even go back and, and read some of those, like recodings. I recently reread recodings, which was about, you know, 80s theory. and It's great. Um, yeah. It's a brilliant piece, and I think that's timeless. There's a lot of sort of theorists and things like that that I'll pick up and put down. In the piece that's called Recapturing Memories of the Black Ark, there are black stars on that stage. It's a, it's a, it's a stage on which performances happen. Mm-hmm. There are black stars on that stage, and they relate to Marcus Garvey, and I wondered how much of the sort of literature around Pan-Africanism and so on were formative writings for you or still have a sort of presence in the studio today, as it were. I think they have a presence. As I said, I went to school in the 80s. Art theory, criticism shaped the way that we thought and looked at work, and I think that I still hold true to that. I still think that the kind of synergy, so to speak, between artist and theorist or writer, critic, is essential for art to move forward. They, don't, they can't move without each other. So I think that it has an effect, but I wouldn't say it's didactic kind of reference. It's not like a one equals two kind of thing. I think that there's influence and it carries through. I think that things like Garvey and what he represents to the West Indies and back to Africa and things like that, um, those are references. Tough to say if I would say it's directly about that. You know, I generally don't do that with work. I try to stay away from that because it it can drift into a kind of preachy kind of thing. And I learned early on that you have to create sort of avenues for people to enter your work at their own pace, at their own time, and feel comfortable to move around in it. And if I restrict or put boundaries in, those kinds of guardrails will become combative and I don't want the work to function like that. Some of the issues around the arc and why it's so important to me is that some of it was a test for myself. As I said early on, artists have trouble playing in the sandbox with other artists, you know, and we like the sandbox all to ourselves. And I think it was really important for me to open up and provide this space that other artists can do what they do on this object that I provided. And I think that that's where the heat is of that piece. I think that I made this piece that's in the, it's a Jamaican sound system, which if anybody's familiar with how those sound systems work and the idea of the chat and the references that that is and and how important that is to community, it's the central place that everybody from all walks of the community come to. It's the heartbeat of that block party. The person on the mic that controls the, the room or, or the, all the energy is really dictating how that party or that event or, or whatever is going to take place. And, and so it, it's important on the arc that it's not programmed by me. I don't lead the path to it. I literally give it over to the place that's going to show it, the museum, the venue, the curator, whatever, and they book it. And hopefully they choose an interesting set of artists that that work, you know, whether they're a spoken word or poets or 
steel band or punk rock bands or whatever they are, they're allowed to move around in their own terms. They can take the stack apart. They can, you know, rearrange them. They can, as long as they use them, it's yours for a period of time. And then, and then it moves on and it gets recorded and that becomes an archive. And the archive, we now have probably over 30 hours of archive time and it, it's fantastic. You know, I have dub dance hall performers. I have my daughter doing spoken word. I have lesbian punk bands in San Francisco. I have ghost poet from uh, right here in London. It's an amazing group of people that I never could have imagined when I first made the piece. And it really did open up this exchange between what I created and, and having other people do their thing. And you know, the viewer gets to enjoy not only the performer, but that experience with the black arc. So it has that patina to it. And um, interestingly enough, a curator recently said, hey, would you ever make an exhibition copy? And I said, why would I ever do something like that? You would lose all of the patina of that. You know, when so-and-so blew out one of the heads and we had to replace that, or it dropped off the top at Desert X, I would lose all of that. It would be some crude copy of, of what was there. So, um, you know, it's, I've had some great experiences working with some fantastic people. Neville Wakefield is somebody that um, really booked the arc and knocked the ball out of the park on that one. It was, you know, there was, there was some pretty amazing people who have gotten their hands on the arc, so... Which music or other audio do you listen to in the studio? Oh, wow. That's a hard question to answer because music is the first thing I do sometimes even before the lights go on. It sets the tone for everything. I could walk in the studio and listen to Shabba Ranks and that kind of leads the charge for the day. Or I could do Jimmy Cliff or it could be Patsy Cline. It could be Johnny Cash. You know, I love Johnny Cash, It's which people... <laughs> come in the studio and they hear me listening to Folsom Prison and they're like, what are you doing? Like, you know, and Johnny Cash is an amazing figure and, and great singer. It could be Miles Davis. It depends on the day. Um, it varies. Etta James, you know, it depends on also what we're doing. So if I'm painting, it's probably something with a lot of energy, probably hip hop. You know, probably I listen to a lot of Jay-Z, I listen to a lot of Nas, a lot of New York rap music. I listen to a lot of 80s punk rock. In an hour, I could listen to The Stranglers and then listen to Donna Summers. I can then turn, go from Donna Summers and go to like the Rolling Stones. You know, it, it's one of those where, you know, I'm always on speed dial. And from the time I was very young, I loved listening to music. I loved everything about it. I loved going to the party and watching who was, you know, playing the records. And that's who I was drawn to at the party. I'm really interested in the way that you've connected music to your practice. So mm -hmm. not just the music itself, but the kind of attitudes and also the forms. So you've connected DJing to the way that you work and also the kind of attitude or energy of hip-hop mm -hmm. again and to talk about moral examples about kind of an example of how to work yeah so it's not just the sound it's the whole culture it's the music. whole culture yeah if i had to pick three genres of of music it would be dub music 70s and 80s punk rock music and hip-hop and I think that they occupy a common space, and that would be politics. I think that rock and roll since the beginning of time has always been born out of teenage angst, teenage fury and, and rage and things like that, and it, it comes out in that. But I think that when it became a political flashpoint, you're talking that probably the one that sets everything in motion would be dub music, and everything sort of comes back to that. And that's the importance of the arc, is that... It does represent that. It brings that with it. You don't get hip-hop MCs without dub music. You did, absolutely not. I mean, I, I think that Cool Herc went back to Jamaica, literally, and, and saw somebody chatting on the mic in a dance hall and brought that back to New York. And that was the birth of hip-hop music, was taking two turntables and putting them together. But that act 
of a punk band in the garage, or, you know, I think of music from even something like the skinhead culture, you know, having its own political platform, that there's music that drives that. Now, I'm not associating with skinhead culture in that way, but it's an interesting fact of how a political movement, right or wrong, has these undercurrents of music. It comes out through the music, the voices, the political voices, right, left, center, come out through the music. And so you look at bands like The Clash, or you look at something like The Sex Pistols, or Black Flag in America, or a Minor Threat, you know, like bands like that had a political agenda that they were getting out there, and it fueled the youth. And you'll often hear the kids say that those guys spoke to me. They say what we're trying to say, and we're not being heard. And so those are, for me, the way that the music operates. And I think that when I say visual DJing, that kind of comes out of some of that. I think that the idea of visual DJing is is about reference. And a good DJ will have the Jackson 5 on one turntable, and by the time the crowd has recognized what that sample is, that DJ is on to two or three other discs that are also kind of obscure but familiar, and there's this moment where you're like, wait a second, hang on, I know what that is. And then you, that second that you take to identify that, he or she is onto something else. And so they're putting together this narrative for you that you're not really picking up on. And later on, you might be like, oh, wow, I didn't realize I was getting steered down this road. Uh, so I try to do the same thing in the studio. You know, there's bits and pieces. You might be looking at an object or an image that you think you know where it came from, but actually it's a composite of a lot of different things. So it looks like a roller coaster, and you'll say, oh, I know that roller coaster, and it's like, do you really know that roller coaster? Because <laughs> it's not real. It's, it's made up of two or three different roller coasters, and that's intentional, so that there's the moment where you feel like you recognize it, and then there's something that this is off. And the fact that it's blurring. And the fact that it's that. blurring, yeah, and you have to fill in those gaps. For me, that's the strength of the work, is that it hovers between an abstraction and representation, and it needs to stay there or move about in there. I want to talk about film, because I think you said that film is at the core of a lot of the, the first research impulse, basically. And that, and that much of your work begins with film. Yeah. Is that a really studied approach, or is it just literally watching a film and a spark of inspiration happens hmm. it's ah uh, that swings both ways i think that if i come up with an idea film's the first place that i go to i'll say you know is there a film that talks about that or references that or because i i think that one of the fascinating things about film is that you'll be able to tell a narrative or a story even a fractured narrative which is even more interesting through a visual translation for an audience you're right so you sort of draw them in to this emotional place and you're able to move your viewer around through this and i think historically as the moving image film from its earliest stages has a lot of political reference points from birth of a nation to straight through to any recent film i was on the airplane and i, I watched uh, the whale which is an amazing film from darren aronofsky that took me by surprise. Like, I didn't think that it, I would get that engaged with the film. And, and um, you're on this emotional, you know, roller coaster in the film. It's really, it's incredibly sad. It's also um, incredibly beautiful at the same time. And I love that about constructing a film. It's something that a lot of other things that we do can't do. That said, I'm very pleased to be working in paint because I think that, you know, there's something that's really great about going into an art show and slowing people down for a brief period of time. Whether it's seven seconds in front of a painting or 20 minutes, it doesn't matter. I think that if you can enter a gallery and slow somebody's pace down, the world's moving so fast, you know, like just getting here today, this morning, 
you're passing by so many cars and people and everybody's trying to get to someplace and everybody's on a cell phone or they're texting or, you know, they're social media to somebody. Uh, it's, there's all this speed out there to get to somewhere. Where are you going? And so if you get into a, a place that's sort of relatively quiet and forces you to rethink some of your experiences from the past or, or where things are going in the future, I think that's successful. So film is the first place that I go to as a research point to see if there's a historical reference or I look for it if there's some kind of visual thing that I can draw from that will allude to that issue, question, thing that I'm interested in. You've mentioned about music being the first thing you do in the day, but is there a particular discipline in your daily working life that you see as an essential ritual? Hmm. You know, my day is so kind of mapped out it's some some days i'm sort of like well i can't believe this this is just like this is like that movie groundhog dead like i'm doing exactly the same thing i did yesterday it's like the sports analogy it is like the sports analogy uh you know i i think i need to start the day in a relaxing place i'm not one of those painters that you know religiously paints every day i get to the studio and i put on my apron and work from 9 15 to 4 30 you know i'm not that guy i go in There are days, sometimes weeks even, that I won't produce. I need a lot of time in between things. Sometimes I'll sit and watch movies on television for days at a time. And uh, my wife will look over and she'll say, what what are you thinking about? What's this movie about? And I say, I have no idea what this movie is about. It's just something moving in front of me. But I'm thinking about other things. That's one of the things I love about being on a plane, to finally get back on an airplane. I was on an airplane, short ride, it was probably like three hours or something, and I did absolutely nothing for the three hours. I didn't watch a movie, I didn't get up to go to the bathroom, I didn't like eat any food, it was just just sitting there looking straight ahead. And the attendant came over and said, can I get you something, Are you, you know, is there something you would like? No, thank you very much, I'm very happy to sit here <laughs> and just zone out and think about this thing. So it's important to get into that mental place, and then once... I get there, then it's like rabid, you know, I get in and I have to like produce like the lifting weights in the gym and the thing and it becomes very regimented and I get up same time, eat the same thing. Last week I was in Chicago, I was installing a museum show and I think I was there for five or six days. I probably ate the same dinner every single night in the <laughs> hotel room. <laughs> my wife said, well, maybe it's just a ritual that you're getting into. You know, maybe it's good for you that you, you get in that place and you know what you're doing. You don't have to think about it. It's, it's not a bad meal. You know exactly what <laughs> it's going to taste like. And, and you like it. So why not just revel with it? And so, yeah, I did. You know, I ate cheeseburgers for five days. <laughs> great if you could live with just one work of art what would it be just one huh Mm. gerhard richter's candle oh nice wow gerhard richter's candle i think that's one of the most beautiful paintings it's so beautiful and i love the way that it's painted i love everything that conjures you know it's one of those paintings you have a different feel every time every time you look at it you can think about being alone in the dark with just this little flickering light. You can think about all the other associations from birthdays and uh, brownouts and things like that. And then there's other things like the search for light and all those other kind of associations. But at the end of the day, I think it's just a stunningly beautiful painting. And I can never get sick of looking at that. So I think that that's, that's probably one of them but there are many many paintings <laughs> actually it would, my immediate response to that question would be the rector that's a good choice lastly what's art for hmm wow you leave the toughest question for the end what is art for art is for defining or attempting to define those things that we can't describe those feelings emotions political moments Uh, those private moments, those mental struggles, those sexual attractions, those abstract spaces. It occupies that space. It's that thing you can't describe. It's almost like the pauses between words in sentences where a writer 
can write a narrative. Art exists in between those words. Gary, thank you so much. Thank you. This was really a joy. Gary Simmons, Public Enemy, is at the Museum of Contemporary Art Chicago from the 13th of June to the 1st of October. Then it's at the Perez Art Museum Miami from the 5th of December until the 24th of April 2024. Gary Simmons, This Must Be The Place, is at Hauser and Worth in London until the 29th of July. And that's it for this episode. Please subscribe to A Brush With wherever you're listening and do give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Do also subscribe to our sister podcast, The Week in Art, a deep dive into the latest big art world stories, the top shows and the key issues every Friday. We're on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. Production, editing and sound design on A Brush With by David Clack and the producer is Amy Dawson. Thanks also to Daniela Hathaway. A big thank you to Gary Simmons. We'll see you next week. Bye for now. A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects. Download Bloomberg Connects today and discover cultural institutions on demand.